0: This is No More Water Cooler, a podcast from Leapers. Each week we aim to have an honest, open and frank conversation with somebody who is self-employed about their work and their mental health to understand the reality of working for yourself. We're not going to be hearing stories of bootstrapping to billion dollar valuations. We won't be talking about how we're crushing it and we certainly won't be pretending that everything is okay all of the time. I'm Matthew Knight, one of the community hosts at Leapers. We support the mental health of the self-employed through our online community, offering tangible things that help, and by guiding those who hire freelancers to help us all work well together. This week, I'm talking to Sam Judge, an independent designer who recently published The Disquiet of Man, a magazine discussing modern masculinity, and who has personally struggled with obsessive-compulsive disorder. We spoke about how terms like OCD and depression get thrown around inaccurately, his reasons for becoming self-employed, and the challenges that employers might face when wanting to look after their freelancers. But first, as I do every week, I ask Sam, how are you?
1: I mean, I, I was thinking about this, obviously knowing that I was gonna come on and that you were gonna ask me that. And I sort of, I guess what what intrigued me about it was the fact that, and I think especially if you're British, um, people answer that question differently depending on who they're speaking to. Um, and it's it's sort of like, you know, obviously if, if my mom asked me this question this morning, I would perhaps sound a bit more honest, uh, let's say. Maybe like, oh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm struggling a bit here today, this morning. But, you know, if the client called me up and said, hey, how are you? I'd be like, yeah, great. Everything's everything's cool.
0: Do you think that's a problem that we, we don't tell our work colleagues or our bosses or you know or our clients that we might be having a rough day
1: i think for me it is a method that works for me Mm -hmm. um and and i say that because i do have some really close friends um i feel i can open up to my my wife and my my parents about certain things that are bothering me and so in many respects i don't i don't really need to kind of I guess overshare to to other people yeah um and and I, I I have done with colleagues in the past and I've I've got very close to colleagues when I've been in permanent roles um been freelancing for nearly two years now and I think thanks to that good support network in my personal life I haven't really needed to to voice any any of that stuff in the open with with clients or otherwise
0: do you see it as a purely personal support network or is there a professional support network which runs aside, alongside that particularly with regards to freelancing or if you're not feeling so well people who you can speak to that perhaps aren't directly your clients but understand some of the experience?
1: Yes, there is there is a, an element of that that is a sort sort of necessary I think when especially when you're freelancing and and myself trying to run a studio by myself it can be challenging, and I think you know. As much as my wife would like to listen to all of my problems, she, there's only so far that she can listen to some of the, you know, issues I've got with accounting or getting contracts signed and things like that. So, um, so yeah, there there are. I mean, I'm, I think we are both on this, but there's a there's a very good Slack network called Blackbook, and it is full of like-minded um, creatives, designers, developers, who are mostly freelance and are all going through the same stuff, all questioning things like contracts and invoices and IR35 and the woes of dealing with clients, and um, but also celebrating some of the good stuff as well. And in many ways, that's replaced a lot of the, I guess, uh, loose ties or or weak connections I had with colleagues when I used to share an office with them day to day.
0: So tell us about your current working style, Sam, and what brought you to work in this way.
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was somewhat born of necessity. So, I was I was working at um, independent, but it felt quite big to me, design studio uh, of around forty people in in central London. Um, I'd had a child with my with my wife. Um, he's now nearly three. Um, at the time, he was about six months old, and and. We made a decision together that um, we wanted to put him into into nursery. And for anyone who's had a child in London, nursery is an overwhelming cost. And um, connected to some other stuff around my wife's work and her not being able to find work, I essentially found myself as the, I guess, the sole earner in the family, um, in a very new family. And it was all very new, all very, uh, felt like a lot of pressure on me and before i knew it i just was not earning enough money to to keep us all going and i found myself every month getting further and further into into debt and thinking well you know it, it doesn't feel like i'm going to get a significant pay rise anytime soon so how how can i how can i get myself out of this um and it felt like contracting was was a great way to to do that I mean you know it wasn't that it was solely born of necessity there was there was also the desire that had been within me for, for years that I always wanted to to go on my own and do my own thing but at the same time it didn't feel like I had much choice over when it felt like the when of that had to be done at that point in time rather than wait for a perfect time which perhaps was never going to come anyway
0: did, did the um the idea that you had in your head about contracting before you started working in that way and the reality of doing it once you started uh, working in that way, did they match up or was it a um, bit of a culture shock?
1: Um, I, th- I think my my initial contract was actually really great in that there was a team built up at the at the client's offices, predominantly of contractors in a sort of... They basically created a digital... Um, I guess, function to the company built up predominantly of contractors and whether that's a good thing or not is, is, is by the by but for me at least in terms of experience it was great to just go into a pool of people who were just very well versed with contracting, I could ask them loads of questions, It didn't feel like I was completely, you know alone in a sea of people who were you know, I guess fully part of the company and, and on PAYE let's say um, so in some ways, it was a really good experience uh, and one that I imagine many contractors don't get for their first experience. Um, and strangely, the, the the only experience I had really of, of contracting like that, um, because then after that, I guess what I started to see was, was a sort of sea change in the way that contracts were being put out there. And I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but there seems to be Uh, You know, day rates are sort of dropping, people are getting a bit more wary of hiring contractors in light of things like IR35 legislation and things like that, which I don't fully understand, so I'm not going to go into, but um, I think, well, uh, let's put it this way. When When I started contracting, I told myself I would never start an agency because I believe that it is a somewhat... A ridiculous business model to be constantly chasing new clients and then putting yourself out of business by empowering them to go and do it themselves um, I think in
0: some ways you've just described freelancing though haven't you
1: yeah I, th- I think I think so yeah and, and I think that's that's what i i I guess those are the differences between contracting and freelancing for me i think I think f- contracting is sort of um, a bit more rigid in that you're probably just signing yourself up to three months you're going into this into this office environment you're adapting to some of their processes but bringing some of your own as well and you don't have quite the same level of autonomy because perhaps you're being brought into a a larger team um whereas with with freelancing and setting up your own studio at least for me there's, there's a level of autonomy in, in sort of how I work, how I plan projects, um, the need to find your own clients and the fact that you really can't go through recruiters anymore if you want to pursue it in that way um, and, and manage those client relationships ongoing. Um, so it, it feels like there, is, there are subtle differences to it. And I, I didn't exactly want to do this initially, although that wasn't what I was expecting to do but then when i saw the market change a little bit around contracting i sort of felt it was necessary to shift towards more of a studio model whereby you know i was billing a bit differently and pricing my work a bit differently than than day rates and, and different things like that
0: now you've written about ocd in the past can you tell me a little bit about your experience of that
1: yeah absolutely so this this was way back when i was working at um, a, a small independent design studio, and at the time I was essentially um, in a relationship, when we were we were living together in London. And that relationship started to break down, and um, I really struggled with the idea of it of it ending or needing to end it or feeling like I wanted to end it. And underlying that came this this new. Um, experience of of OCD, and now I, th- I think OCD is is quite interesting because many people, I, I guess, there's a sort of a a popular idea of what OCD is, which which is a bit removed from the reality of it. So I think when when people think about OCD, they perhaps think of two things. They think of Jack Nicholson in in the film that I'm failing to remember now, where he's trying to avoid stepping on the cracks, or he has to wash his hands many times, uh, or can't have the fork at the restaurant, um, and and then there's this there's this other idea that OCD just means that you like things neat and tidy and things put in their place. Uh, people refer to it as oh, it's because of my OCD, um, and it's said in quite a colloquial way. Um, and I think actually both of those images aren't particularly true to what to what perhaps it really is. Um, and so with, with my experience of OCD, and I, I can't speak for, for other people, of course, but my experience was what is, um, I guess, clinically termed as pure O, which is just the obsessive part of the compulsive disorder. And that, for me, manifested itself in a sort of um, pattern of negative thoughts. So I would literally spend an entire 24 hours thinking about one thing and having that, um, play over in my head again and again and again really struggling to, to switch off from it um, as much as I would try and it felt like the more I tried the, more the, the louder that voice or that, that recurring thought got um, and then strangely it sort of morphed over time over a number of weeks into a completely disconnected thought that was almost nothing to do with my current situation or, or where I was in life and it was a tr- truly horrific thought that that shook me to my core and made me feel like I was a really terrible person. Um, and it was it was just a terrifying experience, and I just couldn't figure out how to how to get it over with. And and I think you know when you talk about <clears throat> depression and anxiety, it's almost like. You sort of recognise that oh you have to work through it and you have to you have to get over get over it eventually with time, but with this it felt like I just needed to switch it off like like now like there was no waiting I couldn't go any longer with it.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was a moment where you decided to seek help in some way.
1: Yeah, so I I went to a doctor um, via the NHS. I was signed up to a, a CBT course. The waiting list though was what was it? It was was like six weeks, I think, um, which felt like an enormous amount of time, given what I was going through. And so I felt like I just had to solve this on my own. Um, So I started taking, I I sort of requested the doctor to give me tablets. I started taking tablets, which were SSRIs, um, which sort of helped calm me down a little bit and helped um, made me feel a little more normal, but it didn't actually stop the thoughts. So I think what it did was it it put me in a place where i could actually start to address it rather than feeling very panicked all the time from there i sort of dug deeper into the into the i guess the sensations i was feeling on the internet and looked up different online cbt techniques and just applied them to myself
0: we're using a lot of acronyms here in in your own words how would you describe what cbt and cognitive behavioral therapy is and how does it work at its kind of most fundamental level?
1: For me, it's it's a, trying to re- rewire the brain and to make it think in the way that you need it to to get over any particular negative pattern that's currently happening. Through some of the techniques I learned, um, it was essentially to rather than push the thoughts away, to accept them and and let them let them pass by naturally. And over time, that became easier to do. They became less re- recurrent, and um, I am, I remember thinking, "Oh God, if I can go a whole day without this thought coming into my mind, then um, then that would be amazing." And eventually, after several months, I <clears throat> I sort of felt I got that day.
0: And and that that's pervasive. That's affecting every aspect of your life. What impact did that have on work, and did it prevent you from? working in the way that you wanted to you were employed at the time right that was a job job yeah okay how, how did that affect work and, and did you have conversations with work about what you were going through at the time
1: yeah I had a I've had a very frank conversation with, with my boss at the time um, and sort of told him what I was going through he was very understanding but um, I felt like I even, even though he was very understanding, I still felt like I had a duty to turn up at work and show up, which perhaps was wrong. I, I, I guess I saw <coughs> I saw not going to work as admitting defeat, almost. Um, and so I, I, I guess I kept going throughout all of it, and I sort of went into autopilot. And I don't know that I did my best work. I don't know that, you know, during that time, I don't know that whether people recognised a difference in me. But I sort of wasn't fully present throughout the day.
0: And then when you um, decided to start working in a different way, working for yourself and contracting, was uh, the OCD and going through that experience a concern for you, if that was something that was to return and, and impact your
1: ability to work? Absolutely, yeah. I think... Um, now now that there is sort of a pressure for me to to always make sure that i'm well enough to keep earning um especially given that i don't really have much safety net beyond that um it it felt like you know if things were to get that bad then then i wouldn't be as secure or safe and and especially now i have dependents and i have to worry about that as well um so I think, you know, last year I sort of got to a place where things were dipping a bit. I was feeling a little bit low, a, a bit unsure. Anxiety was sort of building up on, on a daily basis. And I wouldn't have normally done this, but I sort of said, well, you know, I, I need to look after myself now and I need to make sure it doesn't get any worse. So I signed up to, to a private therapist, which felt like a massive sum of money to be, to be paying each week and quite almost quite selfish to be paying that amount on myself um but i felt it was necessary to <clears throat> to protect myself from from getting getting worse or not being able to work
0: how do you feel about that now do you still see it as a selfish investment or or to protect those dependents and your ability to work
1: no i think i think after several months of of therapy um I really came to understand its power and the value in it and how how it's more of an investment than it is spending money on yourself. And I think I think, you know, really you're investing in in your own mind and and keeping that um, I guess, either either level or or working through the nuts and bolts of it and understanding yourself better. And as a As a designer, who's you know, I guess primarily hired on the basis of how I think, and then I guess that's an investment as good as any, really.
0: And more recently, you've published a magazine on mental health and and mental health in men in particular. What prompted the decision to make the uh, to start that project?
1: If I'm completely honest, the the prompt was to find a format that I was comfortable with to put some of my art and writing out into the world but I think the reason why I sort of landed on the topic of men and masculinity and, and mental health is that obviously I'd had that personal experience that I felt um, very strongly about and at the time when I was planning it I was, I was reading more and more about about feminism and sort of questioning well what, what role can I play here in trying to um, work towards equality? And it felt like questioning things like masculinity and how men are was almost at the root of many of the, the issues um, that, that feminism is standing for. And so I guess what I wanted to do with the magazine is sort of present men as they are in a sort of um, wider image than what is typically put out there in the world um, so that people can just, just see it. I, I didn't really go much further to, to analyse it or provide any critique on it. I just wanted to present men as they were in, in all of their, um, I guess, beautiful aspects and, and negative aspects.
0: It's interesting that there's a parallel there to when you were talking about how obsessive compulsive disorder is displayed in in the media in movies in stories these kind of cliched tropes of how it presents and how different that is to the reality of, of it being such a broad spectrum of ways of presenting uh, very similar to uh, masculinity and mental health in men is that there is a, a whole load of tropes around what mental health looks like Um, But I imagine in your conversations with the people who you spoke to, there's a far richer diversity of stories and experiences. What was the most surprising thing as you were having those conversations with different individuals about the stories which you were hearing?
1: I, I think that I was expecting there to be to uncover some sort of thing about men that was that was very true of men. And actually... I think perhaps what was surprising was that they're just not that different to anyone else really when you dig a bit deeper, deeper and that the differences between men men and women aren't aren't so different after all and and I think connected to that is something else that was surprising after the magazine was put out <clears throat> was that quite quite a well quite a, not a, not a majority but let's say 40% of the people that bought the magazine were, were in fact women. And I don't know why I was surprised by that, but it's just something I didn't expect women to be interested in. But of course, um, I was very grateful that, uh, of the women who bought the magazine and um, spoke to a few of them, you know, okay, well, well, what did you find interesting about it? And they didn't seem put off in any way by the fact that it was about men. And I guess they also weren't trying to find anything out about men either. They, they were just genuinely interested in in what some men had to say.
0: What's next for that project? Are you looking to continue to capture those stories and share them?
1: Um, yeah, so I think for me, the I, I would love to do more of it, but the, the project was quite consuming for me, uh, given that it was a side project as well. It took me over a year to, to get it together and, you know, I, I did the interviews, I transcribed them, wrote them up into articles that, that were sort of readable in a magazine format, um, did the design, some of the artwork, uh, orchestrated all the collaborators. It was just it just very consuming. Um, I do have a, an idea bubbling under the surface for, for a follow-up to it, which is, more about fatherhood and what what that means um, I guess again drawing on some personal experiences from from me being a father um, but I think also it's quite it's quite a difficult time for men um, dealing with the change in in becoming a father and, and the new responsibility it brings um, and and w- with me as well with my experience of I guess a, a very mild, postnatal depression that came, that perhaps I wouldn't call it depression, but perhaps um, an overwhelming sensation of emotions that came after the birth of my son for the fo- following weeks after that really, I don't know, just unsettled me a little bit. And it sort of piqued my interest and made me want to dig a bit deeper into that and and maybe speak to some people who, who are perhaps not not doing so well with their role of fatherhood or have had a tr- troubling experience with that and just try and understand some of that a bit, a bit deeper.
0: The magazine being a, you know, what is often called as a side hustle or, you know, side project, passion project. Um, and it being all-consuming is really interesting. It's a common story that you hear that a lot of the self-employed are not just working on their job in quotes but they also have additional projects which are passion projects that they're investing in because they want to do it because it's driven by a personal experience or scratching a personal itch when you work on the next project how are you looking to try and address that balance of making it not all-consuming or do you think that's part of the process of of working on side projects and passion projects yeah i
1: think i think there's some aspect of it that is sort of rooted in just how I am like there's I just can't get away from the fact that it is going to consume me and and it even is the same with with client work I you know when I take on a research project I basically immerse myself in that for a few weeks and my wife will confirm this that it's basically all I talk about for for a few weeks and that I think there's a part of me that that likes that that sort of thrives on it And I think for anyone who works in client services as well, there's also a part of them that once they've had that that depth and consumingness of it all, they also then want to move on to the next thing and get consumed by that. And so, and and I think that that's kind of not getting that sort of scares me about sort of signing myself up to I don't know a, a product side company where I would work on that for the next five years of my life like that that feels more scary than. Than the prospect of being consumed by several, or you know, several projects throughout a year is—is
0: is that a positive uh, side of the OCD? That that real kind of passion and commitment and deep dive into something and throwing yourself at it wholeheartedly.
1: Yeah, I mean, when when I to go back to that frank conversation I had with my boss at the time of experiencing that weird um, obsessive thoughts, I, I sort of. He said something to me that really resonated, which was, you know, like, even though this is a really negative thing for you right now and, and a really difficult thing, actually, it's just it's just a part of who you are that's just manifesting itself in a, in a difficult light at the moment. But actually, there are, that same element that's led to this is also a very positive thing about you that, that means that you are obsessive about whether the, the quotation marks are correct in a, a line of type um you know those those little things um and so I, I guess to go back to my my issue with people saying oh well that's my ocd and i think that's how it kind of got there that that colloquial nature of which we call it now but um but i do i do think they are all connected and i think for a person like like a designer who is very very obsessive about the details um it's, it's possible that, that it can manifest itself in a negative way as it did with me.
0: Sounds like that frank conversation that you had with your employer at the time is, was really helpful and supportive. Thinking about self-employment, what are the changes you'd like to see employing organisations put in place to work with freelancers and contractors and the self-employed employed, so that it's a more supportive relationship, so that people feel that if they are struggling in some way, perhaps that they can speak up and not feel that it is um, going to negatively have an impact on the relationship or it, do you think that there is just a line to be drawn there and it's not something which you necessarily want to open up to about your client
1: well it's, it's obviously different for different people depending on how they want to share what's going on for them with with whoever they choose to share it with I think the, the challenge now is and I mentioned IR35 before I think the challenge now is that the line between paid employee and um, contractor freelancer is being forced to be more separated um, in that, for instance, under IR35, if you are seen to be having free lunches on the company, then perhaps you are getting some of the perks that a paid employee should is having and therefore you need to pay tax like them. Um, and, you know... It's a really great thing as a freelancer to go into an office and be treated as uh, an equal uh, in the same way that the paid employee, you know, the, the permanent employees are, um, and to share lunch with them and have, you know, get immersed in the rituals of that company and, and, and their culture. And that could be really helpful even for the work. You know, who's, who's to say that during lunch you aren't talking about work and that you aren't continuing that conversation, coming up with, with new ideas. And th- there are companies that do do that, that, that treat their their contractors in, in a very same way. And I think that's really healthy and, and that that's a sign of a, a good company. But also I think they're under more and more scrutiny to, to not do that. And, and that's, I think that's a troubling thing.
0: And if there was one question which you'd encourage people before they take the leap into self-employment or working for themselves in some way, uh, what would you encourage them to
1: ask? Yeah, I think the, there's there's two things. The, the first one is the, the cliche, which is which is money. I think you absolutely need to question whether you have enough money to to jump into it because the time between winning a project, doing the work, and getting paid for it can be quite long. And I think. If you have money behind you, there are so many more stresses that just feel easier to deal with when you have the comfort of knowing that you're going to get paid next month and it's okay. Um, so that that's like number one for me and, and I didn't even, I, I sort of knew that as well, but I thought I'd be okay. And and I was okay, but I remember chasing the, the client's accountants to get paid knowing that I wasn't going to be able to pay rent unless they paid me on Friday and thinking this is a really unprofessional way to be in this scenario, but here I am desperate and unable to not do this. So I I think that's number one because it just makes everything else easier if you have the money sorted out. Um, But I I think number two, for, for anyone in a sort of client facing role, one of the things that's really helped me is getting comfortable with being able to say when you don't know something. Um, because I think so often, as, as freelancers, we feel like we need to have all the answers and we need to know everything. And often when we're talking with clients, the, the weirdest questions are thrown out and they they may throw throw you and you perhaps instinctively or reactively try and find an answer and just throw it back at them. But I think w- what's helped me most is just being honest when, when I when I don't know the answer. And, and finding ways to, to say that, to say, actually, you know, we don't know right now, um, but let's, let's find out together.
0: A huge thanks to Sam for being open and sharing his wisdom and experience if you'd like to discuss this episode you can leave comments at leapers.co slash podcast or come and chat further on the slack community every week we'll be talking to more of our members about their experiences so we can support each other to work well if you're willing to be open about your mental health and work so that others can learn from your experience you can nominate yourself or anyone to be a guest on an upcoming episode Sharing your story helps others recognize that just because you're working for yourself, it doesn't mean you're working by yourself. And if you'd like to be part of a support network for people who work differently, would benefit from connecting with others who might be in similar situations, or you're just exploring how to get started, the Leapers community is open to you. Visit leapers.co or search Leapers Community. I'm Matthew Knight. This week's episode was brought to you by three strong cups of coffee and some fluffy slippers from the cold. Until next time, work well.